18 to 22, 1 Peter 3, 18 to 22. Keep a Bible handy if you have one. Uh, there are some available out in the foyer if you don't. And you've probably got some on your phone. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 to 22. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey <clears throat> when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Father, grant us grace in hearing and grant me grace in delivering the message from your word. Make it clear to us. Help us, Father, to understand and grasp what you want us to, to get and change us more into the likeness of Christ as a result of hearing this message, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. So the first word there, for, takes us back to what he had just said. I'm going to read what he had just said so we can get the flow of what Peter is really talking about here. So I'm going to read verses 13 to 17. It's not going to be on the screen, so if you have a Bible, look at it. Otherwise, here we go. This is what led up to him saying for in verse 18. Verse 13. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Okay, so there you go. So what Peter is saying here is he's, he's wanting to comfort and confirm these suffering believers in their faith and hope in Christ. And so uh, he's not trying to confuse them, so he means them to understand what he says. He wasn't trying to lead them into obscure, speculative things. So, so the question is, that Peter's answering, is how can believers in Christ uh, not fear when they're suffering for doing good in Christ? And so for Christ also suffered once for sin. So Christ also suffered like the believers in that day were suffering. And this is really one of the clearest, most concise statements of the gospel in the Bible. So for a moment, it's very clear here. Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And so Christ's suffering led to his glory, so those who are in Christ, through their suffering, will also certainly lead to their glory. So that's his main point. And he, how did he do that? Christ's suffering was unique, not like our suffering, and that he suffered once for sins. So that's a, a statement that says Christ suffered for sins once for all. The language makes it clear that Christ suffered as a one-time sin offering for the sins of others. No one else could or would have ever done that. 
And further, his suffering was unique and that it was the righteous for the unrighteous. So Christ suffered once for sins, one-time payment for all sins of all people, and he did it as the righteous for the unrighteous, which is the love of Christ. This passage doesn't use the word love, but every time you read Christ dying for our sins, when he himself was righteous, he didn't deserve any punishment whatsoever, and we did, then you're hearing a statement of the love of Christ for us. So the Bible says there's none righteous. makes it really clear that not even one righteous person ever on this earth, except for Jesus Christ. And so Christ alone is the righteous one, and the, this uh, only righteous person that ever lived on earth suffered in the place of the unrighteous. And he did it to bring us to God, which is fantastic news. If you know that's what you need, if you know that he's your only hope, that Christ in his death the righteous for the unrighteous, dying for us and being raised again. He did it to bring us to God. So if you're searching for God, then meet Jesus because he's the only one who can bring you to God. He is the deliverer to God. So someone has to bring you to see the President of the United States. You can't just email, hey, President, I'm showing up. I'll be there in a few minutes. Just brew the coffee, set out the tea, I'll be there shortly. You need to go through steps to get there. Well, for us, toward Christ, how much more? Because no one is righteous except for Jesus, including the president, including us. And so that is the only way we can get to God is through the righteousness of Jesus Christ, who brings us to God. So if you're in Christ today, you have received him by faith. He has brought you to God. You belong to God right now. In yours acceptable to God right now as Jesus Christ is. So how could Jesus do this for us? It says here, he was put to death in the flesh. That is, he died in his human body, his humanness, his flesh. But he was made alive in the spirit. Now the word made alive refers to his resurrection. Some have understood this to mean his kind of in-between spiritual state between his death and resurrection. But that word... Uh, made alive refers to his resurrection. It's used that way all over uh, in many places in the, New, in the New Testament. And it says he was raised in the spirit. It could mean that he was made alive or resurrected through spiritual means. There's no natural process that's going to resurrect anybody. It has to be supernatural, spiritual process. That's how those things work. That's, we don't get that. We don't see it. But that's what it, it could mean. It, on the other hand, the S in spirit could well be capitalized and refer to the Holy Spirit. Either way, that would work. We see that in uh, more than one scripture. For example, in Romans 8:11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So the Holy Spirit, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is intimately at work in the resurrection and uniting us to Christ by the resurrection. And there's other texts that speak to this as well. So, moving on to verse 19, in which, in which, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. This is where it starts getting a little bit confusing. What is Peter talking about? So, by means of the Spirit, by spiritual means, or by the power of the Holy Spirit, Christ did something. And I'm in good company and having a hard time interpreting this because uh, Martin Luther, who was a former from about 500 years ago. He was a great Bible teacher. 
and he did a lot to unleash the straightforward teaching of the scriptures, he said about this text. A wonderful text this is, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for certainty just what Peter means. So if Martin Luther doesn't get it, we're in good company. So we'll do our best, right, to understand. Uh, I just wonder if this had to have been helpful for these suffering believers, because Peter's writing to believers who are suffering, and he wants to comfort them. So he, he didn't write to confuse them. So some, somehow the passage of time has made it hard for us to understand. I wonder if Peter's up there kind of snickering in heaven, if there is such a thing. Just, hey, this poor guy's trying to understand my letter. They don't get it. So when in doubt, just go to the text. What does the text say? What does it say? Well, it says that after Jesus was raised from the dead, he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Who are these spirits? Almost every use of the word spirit in the New Testament refers to uh, demons, bad angels. It, it does not refer to humans. So these are not the spirits of men. They're, uh, these angels are in prison. So it shows that they're being punished, meaning they're the bad guys, the bad angels. And Jesus went to them where they are in prison, or at least to where he could proclaim to them in prison. And prison is not used anywhere in the New Testament to refer to a place where humans are kept, good, bad, or otherwise. So this does appear to be uh, angelic beings. So you see, there's a couple of scriptures that talk about these guys and their imprisonment. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, I think I have this on the screen. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. I mean, this gets into weird stuff, doesn't it? Things that we don't normally think about. We don't think anything about this. But Peter felt we need to know this to know, to, to get his point about Jesus' victory. We'll get more into that. But, uh, also in Jude 6, very similar. The angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling. They left their place of holy enjoyment of God, and they rebelled against God. He... God has kept in eternal chains. So these prison talk, chains, eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So it seems that Jesus, when he was raised from the dead, went and proclaimed something to these angels. So what did Jesus proclaim or preach to these hell's angels? Not the motorcycle gang, but the ones in this place called prison somewhere. So it seems to me that what he's proclaiming here is his victory over his own suffering. You know, they were hoping he was going down. I mean, they were hoping the agony of defeat was, was what was coming to Jesus. But he's claiming his victory over his own suffering for the sins of people and over them for the salvation of people. Because one thing the demons are really for, well, they're not for anybody being saved. They are totally against that, and they... they they themselves are irredeemable. That is, there's no salvation for bad angels. So only uh, the only thing they can do to mess up God's plan, if they could, is to stop anybody from being saved. And so Jesus also confirmed their final coming judgment. And so Jesus appears to them in his resurrected state and declares their defeat and God's saving victory. So for Peter's readers who were suffering for Christ, this is confirmation that he has overcome their spiritual enemies. And again, if we don't think this is really what's going on, or we think it's weird, or we don't believe that there's this spiritual realm that influences anything, this doesn't mean anything for us. But they got it. They knew. The Bible says that 
there is heavy-duty spiritual influence that is behind the scenes, whether we acknowledge it or not. And we either believe that or we don't. But the Bible talks about it with just straightforward assumptions that that is the state of the unseen world. So if we're too smart for that, then we, we will not appreciate this text. So all who are in Christ can claim this same encouragement today. Your worst enemy was death. Your my worst enemy is and was death because my worst problem was sin. My worst enemy was death because my worst problem was sin. If any earthly or spiritual enemies can keep me from faith in Christ, which is the only deliverance out from under sin and death, then they win and I lose. But because it's by faith we receive Christ and the benefit of his payment for our sins and the power of his resurrection for new and eternal life, well, that's why Peter's friend John wrote in his letter, this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. So this is all about victory that we receive, not because we're good people or powerful people, but because of Christ, that we receive him and his victory over our worst enemies by faith. And again, we won't do that. We won't receive him that way by faith if we think this is all a joke or we think it's all myth and weird stuff that isn't true. If we get it, then we'll embrace it. So Christ's victory for us, once for all, defeated anything that could threaten our eternal glory with him. Anything, he defeated everything and anything that could threaten our eternal glory with him. Emphasis on eternal, because right now there's a lot of stuff that can mess us up, right? So the primary application for these people was they were suffering because they were believers, and they were marginalized, and they were kicked out, and they were abused and threatened and so on, teased and mocked. So if we suffer ridicule, rejection, or retaliation for knowing Christ, for belonging to him, then his suffering and resurrection guarantees without fail that not one bit of this will result in our eternal ruin, but our eternal glory. And the same is true as we suffer due to anything that we struggle with, as we suffer as those who trust in Christ. So, in other words, if we're suffering due to sickness, financial struggles, family strife and breakdown, struggles with sorrows over death of loved ones, things that challenge us, things that would threaten our trust in God and would cause us to want to not trust God and turn away from our faith in Christ, then this same victory applies to us. So Nancy Guthrie wrote a book called Holding On to Hope. And this whole uh, book is about how she and her husband found hope in the face of their daughter, Hope, who was born with Zellweger syndrome. I've never heard of this until I caught a glimpse of this book. Zellweger syndrome. That's where your cells won't rid themselves of their toxins. And so the systems just shut down, and within there is no cure. And within six months, uh, usually the baby doesn't live more than six months. And that proved to be true in Hope's case. So that was a very hard time for them, as you can imagine. So they, uh, it's genetically passed on. The percentage of genetically passed on is not high, but they took means, they took measures to not have another baby, but they did have it. She got pregnant again, and it turned out that their second baby, Gabriel, also had Zellweger syndrome and also only lived for six months. 
So she says, I had embraced with my mind what I knew to be true about hope in Christ, even though I did not feel that true emotionally. And really, that's where it is for a lot of the things we face. We're not going to immediately emotionally embrace all that Christ is for us, but we, we have, it's a rubber meets the road. Is Christ enough? Is his victory over all that would threaten me, my eternal glory uh, sufficient for me to hold my faith in Christ? Just as kids should trust parents, we don't, you know, kids don't always recognize we're doing, hey, I'm doing this for your good, honey. Do they always celebrate that? Not often. But we know we're doing it for their good. Now, we're not perfect the way God is, so we're not perfect parents. Don't let our kids know that. But, uh, but that's how it is. So uh, this question that went through my mind is, is it wrong for us to be motivated by wanting eternal glory? Is that a bad motivation? Well, if it is, Peter keeps putting it out there for us to be motivated by. Uh, so he had said back in chapter 1 that we, as we persevere in faith in Christ, are going to receive an eternal inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And that the testing of our faith will result in praise, glory, and honor when Christ comes. So, is that wrong? Well, that's what Peter's saying that is part of our motivation. We are hardwired to be glory seekers. The problem comes when we seek it for our own glory and not God's glory first and foremost. So the greatest glory that we delight in and we find satisfaction in and that we live for is God's glory. And with that, he created us to receive glory from him. Apart from sin, that's how it was going to work. And now, the problem is we look for glory in all the wrong places. So, um, we all long for and seek glory. What does that mean? We seek perfection. We seek significance. We seek to reflect greatness. It just needs to be a Godward seeking for that glory. Um, so, you know, we celebrate our sports teams. And if we live in Portland, Seattle area, what do we got? Maybe the Timbers. We'll glory in them because we're not going to get it in the Mariners or the Seahawks. Maybe the Seahawks this year. But we are glory. We are hardwired to seek glory. And God designed us to seek our satisfaction in his glory, and he would provide for us eternal glory in Christ. So, in uh, moving on to verse 20, it gets a little thicker in terms of the understanding what Peter's talking about. If you have struggled with this passage before, and you have a study Bible, you know there's some different understandings of what we're about to look at. If you've never looked at this text before, then just be glad you're going to hear the right understanding from the get-go. You don't have to mess with those other things, right? Amen. Yeah. So here's a couple different ways to understand. I'm going to read the verse, and then we'll talk about a couple meanings, and then what I think is a better meaning. So in verse 20, um, Paul, Peter has just said, he said in verse 19, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, verse 20, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. All right, so what in the world is Peter saying there? Well, some have thought that this text refers to Christ preaching through Noah, like the Spirit of Christ speaking in Noah back in the day and while he was building the ark. And according to this view, Christ was not personally present but spoke by means of the Holy Spirit through Noah. The problem with that is if Christ preached through Noah, it doesn't make any sense to say he went somewhere. So he went to be to, to proclaim to these spirits in prison. And that seems kind of nonsensical, kind of awkward. 
and uh, and then also um, the sphere of there's what what does it mean to say that these are in prison? These people were in prison, so not making any sense there. And it doesn't account for the phrase Christ made alive by the Spirit, which refers to his resurrection. Uh, another meaning, possible meaning, is others think that the imprisoned spirits here refer to the sinful human beings who perished during Noah's flood, and Christ went to them in the interval between his death and resurrection. He descended to hell and preached to them. Uh, some believe this meant he offered them a, a, an opportunity to repent and be saved. Okay, the problem is, spirits, it talks about angels, it's not a word referring to men, so that's one. Second problem with that is the word prison never refers to a place where dead people are in the Bible, so that doesn't make sense. And thirdly, there is absolutely no scriptural support for an opportunity to repent and believe the gospel or in Christ after you have died. So Hebrews 9.27, it's appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. All right, so those are things I don't think it means. What is the better meaning? So let's, what does it say? What does the Bible say? It says that these spirits formerly did not obey. They were formerly disobedient. In the past, they were disobedient. So when were they disobedient? Well, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. And it seems like this is what Moses was talking about in Genesis 6. Got a few of those verses on the screen. So when man began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. And I don't have this verse on, but verse 4 goes on and says, And when these people, these beings called the sons of God, uh, came into the daughters of men, they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old. It seems like the sons of God here are refer is a phrase that refers to angels, fallen, evil, wicked ones, because the context of Genesis 6 indicates this contributed to man's rebellion in the days of Noah. So much so that in uh, Genesis 6, 5 and 6, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, and the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart, so God decided he would blot out man from the earth. God said the earth was corrupt and violent in his sight. All right, so why does Peter zero in on these bad angels that didn't obey in the days of Noah? I believe that the parallel is this something like this. God's patience waited while evil angels sought to pollute the human race even further, which was already doing a great job of being corrupt themselves without any demonic help. But the demons couldn't wait to jump in on the act. And perhaps they were trying to render uh, people unredeemable by kind of mixing the race up. Whatever the case is, it, God clearly recognizes and says this was an evil situation, both men and angels. And so in contrast to the evil generation, Noah, Peter said about Noah in 2 Peter, chapter 2, verse 5, just mentioning this, that he was a herald or a preacher, he's a proclaimer of righteousness. So it seems that Noah proclaimed righteousness while he built the ark, no doubt because he was being challenged and mocked and scorned by the media and the blogosphere for being a narrow-minded bigot and religious fanatic and a nutcase. Probably Home Depot wouldn't even do business with him. 
I, I mean, so Noah had a hard time in those days. And if God preserved Noah when he persevered in faith in God's way of salvation, this is the key. Noah persevered in faith in God's way of salvation and righteousness. So will God deliver his people in Peter's day, the day he was writing this. And in our day, though we faced suffering and persecution, yet show our hope by continuing to do good, even if we are small in number. And that's another parallel, because uh, uh, Peter says the ark was that in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. So uh, God's people, God was, the people God was saving in Noah's day were were small, alienated, persecuted minority, just like in Peter's day. So Noah's day, Peter's day, our day, kind of jumping back and forth here. They were like they were in Peter's day, and, and, and they got singled out for I, um, by, by the IRS for audits, for sure, because high deductions for ark building. And this is why Peter says the ark was that in which a few only were saved. So what does Peter mean when he says this? When he says they were brought safely through water? He means the salvation of Noah and the family was brought about by the same act of judgment that destroyed the wicked. The water also separated Noah and family from the wicked around them. But the same act of judgment that destroyed the wicked became the, the way that God saved Noah and his family. So waters of judgment, waters of salvation. And for us, it's, you're either suffering in Christ, which is redemptive and glory-building, or you're suffering outside of Christ, which accumulates judgment. So the same suffering that we face, common suffering as humans, is either being used by Christ's grace to grow us and prepare us for glory, or it is hardening us and turning us away from Christ. So that leads to verse 21, which says, Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Really? Baptism saves you? I didn't know that. I thought, thought we got away from that understanding. Well, hang on. First, how does baptism correspond to or picture what happened in the flood? All right, so anybody who's submerged in water for more than a few minutes dies. So don't try it, but just know that that's what happens. So that those who enter into God's way of preserving life in the waters of judgment will be saved. Noah and the family entered the ark and were saved. Now, so he says now, baptism, which corresponds to Noah being, and family being saved through the waters in the ark, now, baptism corresponds to that, it saves you in some fashion, we'll talk about that in a minute, through Christ. So does Peter mean that baptism saves by the mere act of being baptized, by the mere getting the water on your skin, uh, as if being baptized itself has any saving power? Well, no, Peter says not. He says baptism saves not as the removal of dirt from the body. Baptism does not save by water contacting the skin, uh, even saying all the right words by the right holy person over the water doesn't make it have saving power. So there's nothing about the water itself, the act itself, that produces salvation. Rather, baptism saves as an appeal to God for a good conscience. That's what it says. That's what it says. We have to keep going back. What does the text say? Appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In other words, in baptism, we are asking God 
through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ to cleanse our consciences and forgive our sins. That's what we're saying in baptism, that we're trusting in God, doing it that way, cleansing and purifying our consciences and forgiving our sins. Uh, so, for example, Hebrews 9.14, this is not on the screen, the blood of Christ purifies our consciences from dead works to serve the living God. So does, in reality, this appeal for a good conscience through Christ's resurrection only happen at the moment of baptism? No, but in the New Testament, in the book of Acts in particular, that shows the history of how the church worked out its faith in Christ, those who came to Christ were immediately baptized. Baptism was the way you confess your faith in Christ. You believed and you were baptized. You believed and you were baptized. It wasn't some long process or waiting period. So the symbol and the reality were strongly connected in the New Testament. And the important thing in baptism is that you know that by faith in Christ and his death and resurrection alone saves you and that he is worth following. So when I am baptized, I'm saying I recognize that only because of Christ's life, perfect life, his death and his resurrection and his ascension, as we'll see in a minute, that trusting in that Christ he saves me, and I receive it by faith. And I am going to follow him with the rest of my life. He is worth following, worth living for, worth suffering for in, until he returns or until I die. And so in baptism, that's what I'm saying, that. So that, that's what Peter's talking about. So to obey the New Testament, as soon as you get that and embrace that truth, as soon as you're old enough to really grasp that, you should be baptized. That's why Paul says, using this baptism language in, in Romans chapter 6, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have be, been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like this. So baptism is that picture and declaration of my union with Christ, and the word is so tied up with reality that the New Testament uses that as a symbol, a, a, a synonym for being united to Christ. And then finally, Peter makes his, finishes his main point, which is we have victory over everything that would threaten our eternal glory through Christ's resurrection, and that's what he's saying in verse 22. Christ has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, the right hand of all authority, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Christ, in his resurrection and ascension, has triumphed over his enemies. The bad angels were all about, they, they knew they couldn't destroy Christ, but they, maybe they could destroy his work to save people. And Christ was very interested in saving people. He was wholly vested in providing his life for salvation of people. So that's what Peter's talking about in verse 19. When he said he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, that's what he's talking about now. When he wrote that Christ went and proclaimed to imprisoned spirits, he's saying that now because, he's, because of his victory. This is why for Peter's readers and for us, our suffering in Christ and for Christ is not in vain. Just as Christ's suffering was not his defeat, 
neither is our suffering our defeat. It is not for our ruin. Christ took on our humanity so he could suffer, so he could suffer and die in our place, that he might bring us to God. And he was successful in doing that. Because Christ himself has suffered and been raised and has gone to God, he can bring us to God. We receive him by faith that way. So believers are united to him in his death and resurrection and in his ascension. Suffering believers have the guarantee that their suffering in Christ as they persevere in faith will result in being with him in glory forever. And the, the closing question I have for us is, do you and I really believe this? Do, does this make any difference whatsoever in anything about my life? Not just in my head, but in my heart. And what uh, Paul says in verse, uh, in Ephesians chapter 1, I think I might have that on the screen for you, where Paul takes the same truth about Christ overcoming bad angels, authorities, and powers. Those are always words used of demonic powers, and if you haven't gotten it so far, those are a big deal, spiritual enemies to us, whether we know it or not. And so what, what does Paul say in Ephesians 1, 19 to 21? That... He's praying in this text that we might know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. How much power do we have through Christ for us, working for our eternal glory and our present good? How much power? He tells us. According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So do, do you and I believe this? Do we really embrace this truth that no matter what I'm facing in terms of any struggles I'm having living for Christ, any trials I'm facing financially, anything I'm facing with sickness, family problems, whatever I'm facing in my life, Christ's power is at work in my suffering as I trust in Him, and that trust is not perfect, but we keep repeating biblical truth to continue to call ourselves to trust in Christ no matter what we're facing because his power has triumphed and trumped over everything that could ruin us. That is a glorious truth. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that your power is made perfect in the weakness of Christ. And in that weakness, your power was perfected for us. In his, he was crucified in weakness. He was raised in power and overcame every enemy, our worst enemies that could ruin us, that could keep us from you, that could keep us under judgment for eternity. We value that so much, even though we don't yet, we're like little kids. We can't see all that we're reading here, Father. We can't grasp all we're talking about. By faith, we do acknowledge that we were deserving, are deserving only of your judgment forever. And Christ triumphed over our sin, death, and the devil because of his great love for us. Proclaim victory. So all of us who are suffering in Christ know that none of it is wasted, none of it is useless. All of it you are working for your glorious plan that we may enjoy your glory forever.
Thank you, Jesus.